So, uh, as Jesse was saying, in Mark chapter 3, we're going to look at the concept of family. And so, it's something I want you to think about as we go through our sermon this morning. How do you define family? And how does your definition of family define you? This is a really important question. Because like many other things in our lives, the, our ideas about family are shaped by our upbringing and our circumstances. And so whether your family is healthy or not, whether you have this idealistic picture of family or this unrealistic picture of family or all too pessimistic picture of family because your family has been nothing but broken and, and hurting. Our definition of family we're going to find this morning. Because as with everything, Jesus sets our standard. Jesus always takes what small, little, comfortable definitions we have of things and raises the bar so high beyond what we can grasp in our minds but understand in our strength. And what He often does is He challenges our common conceptions of what things should be. It's often very difficult and very trying when he takes something that's comfortable and near to us and tells us things that we need to hear but are not easy to hear. And so, as we look at our text this morning, what I want you to see is that how we view family is inseparable from how we view God. Jesse set us up beautifully in that, that prayer. Because our definition of family, our identity, comes out of who He is and who He has called us to be. And that should define how we view family. And so, this is in the context of chapter 3 and what we've seen in the last few weeks. And I think Mark in his, uh, his choosing of accounts and how it's set up really builds up to this. So, what we've seen in the past couple weeks... So, a couple weeks ago, we looked at the election of the apostles, the choosing of the apostles in verse 14, that they would be with him uh, to do his will. And then you've got the contrast of those closest to him, his family in verses 20 and 21, their rejection. Not celebrating Jesus' teaching and wanting to be with him, but thinking that he's crazy and he's out of his mind. And last week, we looked at the deception of the Pharisees saying that this man is a devil. This man who in the very Spirit of God is in the work of recreating people in His image, attributing His work to Satan. And this week we're going to look at divine adoption. And as we watch this flow, we're seeing Jesus in His work of new creation. Taking what has been affected by the fall, cursed because of sin, and recreating it. New Israel, new family. It's a beautiful picture of God's redemption and God's restoration of His people. So this is is a short passage, a few quick verses, and some very simple yet profound statements from Jesus. And so I want us to look this morning at our identity in this passage and how it flows from the very nature of God Himself. So if you have your Bibles, open up to Mark chapter 3. I'm going to read verse 31 to verse 35. 
And his mother and his brothers came. And standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around them, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Let's pray. Lord, this is just incredible that we might be called brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus Christ. There ought to be more amens than that. We could stand in your presence and not cower under your wrath because of our brother Jesus Christ. What a beautiful passage. What an encouraging passage to the body, Lord. Thank you for this encouragement. But also thank you for the challenge. Because this may be difficult for many people to hear. Because we grieve over loved ones who are in our biological family who reject you and who hate you. Lord, I pray that your church would be encouraged and built up and strengthened, standing tall and our adopted identity in Jesus Christ this morning. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. So the first thing I want to do is I want to look at this situation as a whole. Verses 31 and 32. And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around them, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. So if we're still talking about the same scene that has been unfolding since verse 20, and I think we are, You can kind of see the picture painted here. Jesus goes up on the mountain before that, and he uh, commissions, appoints his apostles, and then he goes to be with his family. His family's inside eating, and they can't enjoy their dinner because all these people are showing up wanting Jesus to perform more miracles. Jesus is outside talking to them. They think he's crazy. In that crowd are the scribes who've come down from Jerusalem to challenge him. And there's no little challenge either. This is not a polite discussion if you look at their their words. Last week we covered this in verse 22. He is possessed by Beelzebub, and by the prince of demons he casts out demons. This is not some calm opposition. You know, by George, I think he might have a demon. No, this is hatred. This is outright conflict between righteousness and godliness and the powers of the devil. And then the scene furthers. His mother and brothers came and standing outside, they come out of the house and Jesus is out there with those listening to him and they call to him. From a distance, they send someone to bring him back home. You're crazy. This is where we find ourselves. And so there's a lot of tension going on here. There's a lot of different motivations. And Jesus, as he often does, he's going to use this interruption for illustration. But before we get there, I just want to break down this, the situation a little bit. First and foremost, who are his mothers and his brothers? Um, well, Mark tells us in chapter 6, and it kind of gives us an indication of what's going on here behind the scenes. So if you look in chapter 6 of Mark, 
This is uh, when they're not very happy with him in Nazareth, his own hometown. And they're not happy with him because they know his family. So if you look, verse 3, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? This is Jesus' family. We know them by name. And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. Still up until this point, he is in opposition to those in his very house. So his mother and his brothers and sisters are mentioned. Why is Joseph not mentioned? Anyone ever thought that? We don't know. A lot of scholars think he was dead. Uh, we don't know. But what we do know for sure is that Jesus' association is to be with his heavenly father, not his earthly father. No longer is he to be defined by the home that he was born into, but his union with the Father that he has had forever. And he will always point to his Father in heaven, never to his Father on earth. So this is important for us. This is also important if any of you come from a Roman Catholic background or you, inter- you interact with people from the Roman Catholic tradition because they will say that, that Mary uh, never, ever had sex and that Mary never, ever had biological children. Because they, they, they almost deify Mary. In many uh, Catholic paintings, you will see Mary along with Jesus and, and the Father as the Holy Trinity. So this is to show that Jesus was in fact a man with brothers and sisters, and Mary was in fact, though blessed by God, an ordinary woman. And we must keep that in mind as we move forward, because we're going to see how ordinary she is in this passage. This is not a very flattering passage for Jesus' family. And if, you, if your eyes are not open and you don't see who he is, you can understand how they'd be concerned. How they, Jesus, come back in here. It makes perfect sense from a carnal understanding. But I want to look at a few things that are going on here. And Mark is very specific in the terms that he uses. We're going to look at some uh, descriptive terms that kind of tell us what's going on behind the scenes. The first thing I want you to notice is the contrast between standing and sitting. Did you notice that? And his mother and his brothers came standing outside. And twice, there are those who are sitting around him. We've gone over this before, but it's a helpful reminder that in that culture, it was a sign of respect to sit under someone's teaching. I am sitting under your authority. I am putting my learning under your expertise. There are those learning, and then there are those standing in the distance. And those standing are his very family. Second thing that kind of supports that and even doubles down is there's another word repeated twice in here. Anyone notice it? We always say this. What what words are repeated? It helps us understand the context of the passage. Outside. They were inside eating dinner before, but now in this passage, when Jesus defines family, both times referring to his biological family, they are outside. This is literally, they have now come outside of the house, but this is also figurative. They are outside the kingdom of God at this point. They are outside of Jesus' teaching. They are outside of those who are sitting there listening to him. Those who are inside of the kingdom sit at Jesus' feet. Those who are outside stand at a distance. Amen. And as they're standing at a distance, they do something that's remarkable. They send to him. They call him. One thing we see in Mark is that Jesus is the one who does the calling. And when they send for him, 
They're telling Jesus that we think we know what's best for you. Come over here. This is where you should be is, is with us. We know better than you do. And there's one more word that's very telling here. The end of verse 32. Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. This is a um, common word to seek, desire, go after. But every time Mark uses it, it is when someone is seeking Jesus for their own selfish purposes. Let me give you a few examples. Same word here. Look at chapter 1, verse 37. When everyone is coming to him, and they're flocking around in verse 37, and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. Same word here in the Greek. And he said to them, let us go to the next town. Jesus does not accept them seeking him on their terms. Look at, look at chapter 8. The Pharisees confronting him. Verse 11. The Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. Same word in Mark 14. Judas' betrayal. Again, I'm not tying Judas' betrayal to the family, but I want you to get the idea. This, every time Mark uses this word, he's, he's trying to convey a particular posture of the people. Mark 11.10 Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him. And when he heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Every time this word is used, Jesus' family here is seeking him for their own purposes. They're embarrassed. They're worried about him. They have no faith or confidence in his teaching or in his identity. And so Jesus' family is not really painted in a great light in this passage. But it's to set up what he's going to do next. So as the situation unfolds, he responds in verse 33, and he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? This should be a simple question because his biological mothers and brothers, the obvious answer, are calling to him from a distance. And I'm sure it's not lost on the crowd. But why is he asking this? Is he being disrespectful? Now certainly, he honors his mother. We can't say that. Certainly, he loves his biological brothers. We can't say that either. But is there some deeper theological reality going on here? Is he taking this interruption and using it for illustration to make a powerful point? And I think he is. And so here is where we pick up with the language of verse 34. And looking about at those sitting around, who sat around him, again, emphasizing those under his teaching, he says, here, in the Greek, behold, motioning to those sitting around him. Apparently, he's disregarding the call of his family, like they disregard his ministry. He doesn't answer them directly, but he answers them by illustration by those who sit in front of him. And so in these couple verses, verse 34 and verse 35, I want us to look at the details that Mark uses that tell us so much about what it means to be the family of Christ. So when he says, Behold, here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Short, powerful statement, but there are several things I want you to see here. First, those who are among the family of Christ are those who, around, who sit around him listening to his teaching. We know the sisters, Mary and Martha. And Jesus is at their home. Martha is so busy getting everything right and cleaning up the house 
And many of us struggle with that. We want everything to look pretty. We want all the work to get done. It's not a bad thing to work. But when you're in the presence of the Son of God, Mary, sitting at His feet, listening to His words, chose the better portion. This is what we're seeing before us. We're seeing people who know what is in front of them, even if they don't understand fully yet. It is well worth sitting here in Jesus, in front of Jesus, even if I miss dinner. Yes, ladies and gentlemen, Jesus is worth missing dinner. But his family didn't think so. And this passage also makes clear that there are two types of people in reference to the kingdom of God. Those who sit at his feet and those who stand at a distance. Because there's a confusion with those who stand at a distance. Yeah, something's going on over there, but I don't understand it. Like, what's, what's the big deal? Jesus, come back with us. The kingdom of God is sitting at the feet of Jesus or standing off in the distance in confusion, not understanding. There is no middle ground here, just like there is no middle ground in the kingdom of God. Next, there's a beautiful word in here that we can just gloss over. Here are my mother and brothers for, giving us the support, giving us the purpose here, whoever does the will of God. You think about the word whoever. What does that whoever mean? It means anyone. We didn't have to sit at Jesus' feet literally. We didn't have to see the miracles. Jew, Gentile, male, female, young, old, rich, poor, black, white, whoever. This is one of the most beautiful words in the gospel, whoever. Because the gospel does not discriminate according to our external differences. Whoever does the will of God. There is no advantage in being Jew. There is no advantage in being male. There is no advantage in walking with Jesus. Whoever. A beautiful entrance into the kingdom of God for whoever will believe. Whoever comes before Him. And so for our eyes, we don't judge books by their covers. We celebrate that God saves from every tongue, every tribe, every nation, from the lowly to the high up. And this is a beautiful picture of Jesus' family. But, there is contingency there. Whoever does the will of God. It is not everyone and all. This is not universalism. Those who do the will of God, those whose eyes are set on Him, those who are obedient to Him. Because just like our earthly brother, the true children of God obey our, earthly, our heavenly Father. This is what is going on here. Obedience is part of this. And so when Jesus makes this statement, He's showing that obedience to the family of God is even greater than His own family. And one of the most uh, telling statements is in Luke chapter 11. And I'm going to go there quickly. It'll be on the screen. As Jesus is walking among the people, there's a woman who shouts out and she says this. And as he said these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. 
Uh, that's very specific, lady. Um, <laughs> I was trying to picture this being shouted out in a crowd. Um, we've heard some people say some strange things, but I've never heard that. And so she associates, blessed is your mother. Blessed is the breast milk that you drank. But what does he say? Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Man, if any time Jesus could build up the Roman Catholic doctrine of the Immaculate Conception and, and the worship of Mary, it would have been there. He said, no, blessed rather are those who do the will of God and keep it. Now this is, this is, this is humbling. Because if Jesus' mother doesn't have a special status, we don't have a chance. And it is impossible because if, if you and I stand here and think about our own ability to do God's will, and if it means that we're in his family, if we do his will, we feel the tension of works righteousness. We feel the tension of people who are constantly beating you over head and say, you need to do more, you need to be more obedient. Because in our own flesh, we know our inability. But the beauty of the gospel is that there is also within this humbling tension on ourselves there is great news one of the most popular uh, verses on this we're going to look at philippians 2 12 and 13 work out your salvation in fear and trembling the context is so important because we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling we are to be obedient we are to want to do god's will so that we please christ but we have to understand in whose power we do that. Look at Philippians 2, 12 and 13. As Paul writes to the church, he says, Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, of course, it's easy to obey when the Apostle Paul's there, but when Daddy leaves, like, do the kids really obey? Much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Most people stop there. Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling. Work out your own salvation in fear and trembling, as you should. But if you keep hearing that and don't hear it in context, you think it is you doing the work. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It is God's work within us that allows us and carries us on to do the will of God. And this is a beautiful reality of being in the family of God. That you get to work out your salvation in fear and trembling because it is God who works in you. Amen. And so we've got to be careful not to read legalism into this. We've got to remember that this is an encouragement. We get to do the will of God because it is God who works in me for His will and His good pleasure. Amen? But now we get to the other side of that. Here's all of the good news that God works in me and that we sit at His feet as His children. This comes up often in Jesus' teaching. We can't ignore this either. What happens if my earthly family competes with my spiritual family? What happens if I love anyone even close to how I love Christ? Listen, I love parents who love their kids. I love seeing parents who encourage their children. But every time I hear someone say, this child is my world, they're my everything, I cringe. Because of the words of Jesus, and many of you are wondering why I'm saying that, uh, if you have your Bibles, look at Luke chapter 14. 
Because when we talk about Jesus' definition of family, we cannot avoid the line in the sand that he draws. Luke 14, starting in verse 25. And we read this entire passage in its context in our corporate prayer earlier, but we're only going to look at 25 through 27. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and said, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Sounds like the uh, meek and mild Jesus that a lot of people like to preach, right? That Jesus, Jesus loves you just the way you are. You don't have to give up anything for him. He wants you to, just to be happy. Look at his words. If anyone comes at me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. This is no black or white. There's no wiggle room here. So what is Jesus saying? Jesus saying, does he actually want us to hate our family? So we have to be careful here. Would Jesus ever commend hatred? Would he ever commend this type of vile response to the family he's given us, as Jesse mentioned earlier? Or is it that our love for Christ should be so grand and so overwhelming that the way we love our family looks like hate? The way we love our own lives. Mom, she's back there. I love you. But if it comes between you and Christ, I'm gone in a second, as she would do with me. And this is how we are to stand, and this is difficult. This is difficult not to see your identity as those who bear your last name. This is difficult because some of you think, I kind of like Jesus, but I really like my kids, or I really like my spouse. Do you love Jesus to the extent that your love for everyone else isn't even visible on the radar? If not, you're not worthy of him. Because if anyone else could compete for who Jesus is in your heart, you don't know who he is. This is difficult words. Whoever, he goes on to say, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. If you do not bear your own cross and come after me, if you want the world to love you, you want to be welcomed by the crowds, if you want to be silent when it comes to my name, you don't deserve me. You want the world, you can have them. But to follow me, you must take up your cross. That does not mean the little difficulty that you're going through this week. That means the name of Jesus Christ, his humiliation. The world despising him, dying to yourself and living in him. Then you are truly his disciple. So you think this one's hard. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 10. Again, this is going to fly in the face of uh, Vidal Sassoon, Jesus, who comes with a lamb around his neck. And, uh, you know, hippie Jesus, we like to call him. Jesus did not come to bring peace, but what does he say here? What will happen to the followers of Christ in Matthew chapter 10? Look at verse 34. Do not think that I have come to bring peace on earth. I've got to rewrite our Christmas songs now. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. 
For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. What does that mean? Because if the other one was hard to swallow, everyone's throats got really dry just a moment ago. He came to bring a sword. What does that mean? That means there are going to be those that you love dearly, and that you are praying for their salvation and they will hate Christ. And there will be division in your house. There will be division in your family. And if you are married, often there will be division in your bed. That is hard to hear. Because there is no middle ground. There is no squishy middle for the gospel. That sword divides like the word of God between joint and marrow. And that is hard to hear. He goes on. Whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Those words are not preached very often in many sermons in, in our culture. It's hard to hear. But is Jesus Christ worth it? Thank you. Whoever said that very loudly, I appreciate that. Is he worth more than the love of your spouse, the love of your children? Even peace in your own home. When Jesus looks at you, will he say, behold, these, my mother and my brother and my sister, those who sit at my feet and who forsake all else for me. And... The last thing I want to look at in our passage in Mark are those words. Mother, brother, sister. Beautiful words. These are adoptive terms. Because those people had no share in Jesus' family. He calls people who are not his family, family. Mother, brother, sister. These are beautiful words. So what I want to encourage you with this morning is look around the room. See, someone in Christ, as the body of Christ, mother, brother, sister. Do we see each other the way Christ sees us? Mother, brother, sister. Beautiful words. This is family. And so what does it mean for us? So first you may ask the question, why no father here? Because in this family, there is one father. Amen? And so what does this mean for Jesus' family? What does it mean for our families who share our DNA? The spiritual always supersedes the carnal. Always. And that is a challenge for us. Do we see things in light of eternity? Do we see things in light of the eternal truth that Jesus Christ has united us to Himself, but also to one another? That those who are your true family are closer than your last name. Those who bear the name of the King with you. Truly brother and sister, not just men and women you go to church with. And this is great news, because if your family is dysfunctional, this is the best news you could ever hear. Or if your family is absent, Jesus brings you into a family that you will be in forever. 
And even if your family is great and they all know the Lord, it's just gotten bigger. That is why we celebrate when someone is converted and the dead turn to life. Yes, because the dead are alive, but now we have gained a brother. We have gained a sister and the body of Christ grows in this family that we call home in this room and all around the world. It's continuing to grow to the praise of His glory. So I think it's important to note here that as we look at the negative light in which Jesus' family is painted, Mark writes this 40 years later. And at that time, his mother and his brothers are converted that we know for sure. His brothers wrote two of our New Testament epistles, James and Jude. Of course, he changed his name from Judas to Jude, as, we, as I would too. Um, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> James is also what we understand is the, the, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. He becomes not converted at this time, but becomes a pillar of the young church. In Acts 15, when they have the Jerusalem council, they're going before the brother of our Lord. And so they are redeemed. Praise God that he redeems them. But Mark is very intentional on what he does here. We are to praise God for what he has done. And so it is important that we don't exalt Jesus' family and think that they have some kind of special status. It's very important that we, that we recognize that. Because apart from regeneration, we're all on the outside. His family is on the outside until they've been born into the new family, no matter who you are. But now the church reading this can see in light of, man, look what Jesus did. He was willing to call out his own family who would ultimately be redeemed. So, we're going to spend a little time on, on, on adoption, but I want to ask a couple questions of us as we think about the text of this passage. If we're honest, how do I approach Jesus? Am I the one sitting in his feet, listening to his teaching, or am I standing at a distance? Am I standing at a distance? Even as believers, we can also often stand at a distance. Say, Jesus, come over here. It's more comfortable where I'm at. What you're doing is too crazy. You're asking too much. Jesus, come back over here. How many of you are trying to call Jesus to fit into your idea of what it means to be a Christian instead of sitting at his feet? How often do I talk to Christians that is heartbreaking? That they want to pick and choose which parts of Jesus that they like so that they can remain comfortable in their own immaturity and in their own rebellion. How blessed it is, that peace to just sit at his feet. Say, you're boss, not me. I will sit under your authority. So next question is, are you a member of the family of Christ? Do you see your brothers and sisters in Christ the way he does? Is your identity uh, as your idea of family and your identity the same as Jesus's? Or do you still struggle with that? Or do you still say, I'll keep my family close, but everyone else I'm going to keep at arm's length? I love these people in the church, uh, but I like them over there. Is this what we see in this passage this morning? And maybe you even struggle with that. Do you struggle with your identity as a child of God? 
Jesus says, you are my brother or my sister. That is incredible. It is, it is amazing, but it's also maybe hard to accept. You see yourself as God sees you. Or do you fight against that? Are you indifferent to it? Yeah, I know what Jesus says, but, you know, I'm going to check the box, uh, go to church this week, go without, you know, go throughout my, my life, and yeah, I'll dig into the body of Christ at some point. Or do you see it as Jesus says, here are my mother and my brother and my sisters, those who are sitting with me. That is the posture of the church, brothers and sisters, sitting shoulder to shoulder at the feet of Jesus. Amen? Amen. So, this idea of as church, as family, uh, not in one location, but all around the world, is throughout the Old Testament. Every book in the New Testament has some kind of reference to family. Paul alone uses the word brother at least 135 times. Again and again, referring to those in Christ as brother. Is that how we see each other? Uh, I, I really am encouraged by this family. Like, I've never been in a church, uh, never been around people who are so aware of that, who call each other brother, who call each other sister. Um, my wife has been mouthing to me because when I preached on John last year, we brought this up. And Jesus said, who, who are my mothers and brothers? And so we would get together and walk in the room, and someone would say, mothers and brothers, mothers and brothers. And so we had this, there, there, there would be this, this kind of running thing that every time we're, we're, we're in a body of, of believers, hey, my mothers and brothers. It's, we, we, we would all laugh, but it's cool because it's true. And I see Charles smiling back there. I love that Charles was a young Christian. He was converted a month earlier, and he got to hear this language from the beginning. These are my mother and brothers and sisters. Man, I wish I had that from the beginning. And I'm proud of this body that we do that, and we do that well. That we call each other brother and sister and mean it. And it is a beautiful thing, and you'll never find more fulfillment than being in Christ, in the body of Christ, with others who love Christ more than they love you. That is the way to be a good brother or sister. Love Christ more than you love the person. It's a great guard against people-pleasing. But this whole thing, this family that we have now that will extend into eternity, is made possible by the doctrine of adoption, one of my favorites. And so we get to dig into that. So I want to spend our last few minutes here in this beautiful doctrine of adoption. So what is adoption and what does it have to do with our passage? Well, biblical adoption mirrors the adoptive process that we're familiar with. It takes a child who has no family, no name, no heritage, no future, and brings them into a loving family. And as Christians, we understand this in a way that the rest of the world does not. This is why, as Christians, we are more passionate about adoption and saving lives than any other group on the planet. Because if we truly understand who we are in Christ, we know what it means for us to be taken into his family, for us to be orphans, for us to have no hope and no future. And he says, you're mine. You're going to eat at my table and be my son, my daughter. Jesse has talked about how being adopted such an encouragement to him, helping him understand the love of Christ. And I'm so 
encouraged to have Darren and Brittany Mann with us who have made it their passion and, and goal to encourage adoption and to encourage and support others who are adopting. And so we're, I'm just going to plug that because we're going to be using their, their, their coffee. Darren uh, is a coffee nerd. And, so, and I mean that in the best possible way. He says thank you. Um, I mean that in, in the best possible way that we're going to partner with them and use their coffee. We're going to get freshly, um, freshly, uh, what's the word? I'm, I'm uh, roasted. I was thinking brewed, but it is, it is roasted. Yes, my mind was just going blank for a second. So we're going to get fresh, freshly roasted coffee each week, and then we're going to get to support families who are adopting children who no one wants, bringing them into loving families. That is a beautiful picture of the gospel, and we should celebrate this. But I feel so often that adoption is, is downplayed because the gospel is forgiveness of sins, absolutely. But it is so much more than forgiveness of sins because we know in the gospel that on the cross Jesus forgave our sins. He took his sin on us. That means we are, we are redeemed. We are, we are bought with a price. We are also justified. We can stand before him righteous. We are given eternal life. We are, we are united with Christ and all these things are amazing and these things are true. But in addition, we are adopted. We are brought into the family. It brings us into the Father's house as His children, co-heirs with Christ. We get Christ's allowance. This is incredible. And this is so often neglected or skimmed over. This is meant to give the church encouragement. This is meant to build us up in our identity in Christ. You are adopted sons of God in Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful thing. It's also worth mentioning that this is also distorted. Because 18th century liberalism has creeped in, and many of us have said or believed the words that we are all children of God. The Bible never says that. That is a privilege of the saints. That is a privilege of redemption. That is a privilege of forgiveness. To be adopted into his family. And we're going to look at a couple passages that will help us out there. You are not children of God by natural birth. You are children of God by being born again. And there's an important distinction here too, also, that gets warped in this. Because we are adopted, we are equal to Jesus Christ in His humanity, and it is a beautiful thing, but we are not equal to Jesus Christ in His deity. Many preach that, and that is very dangerous. We get all of what Jesus has in His humanity. We will be glorified with Him in perfected bodies one day. That does not mean we are equal with him in every way. All right, so we got that out of the way. I want to look at a couple passages. But first, uh, I, I want to see what the, I love what the Heidelberg Catechism says about this. And in question 33, uh, the Heidelberg Catechism says, Why is he called God's only begotten son, since we are also children of God? This is a really helpful distinction. Because Christ alone is the eternal, natural son of God. We, however, are children of God by adoption through His grace by Christ's sake. Christ is a natural son, the only natural son. We are adopted sons, yet still nonetheless brought into the family. And I want to look at a couple passages that bring this out. So first, if you have your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter 4. So I want to look at a couple passages that make Jesus' words from our passage in Mark possible. 
How can Jesus say that, that you are my mother and my brothers and my sisters? How are these things true? Galatians chapter 4, you should be familiar with these, but I just want to bring out a a couple things. And if you're not, you will will appreciate this if you are in Christ. Galatians 4 verse 4. I love to hear pages turning. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law. Why did God send His Son? To redeem those who were under the law. Why was redemption accomplished? So that we might receive adoption as sons. Think about this for just a moment. God sent, God the Father sent God the Son to redeem us. The, re- the re- redemption accomplishes adoption. Amen. The redemption, His death on the cross was to redeem us so that, not just so He would leave us as orphans, but so that He would bring us into the family. He goes on, and because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Because you are sons in Christ, adoption is already accomplished. And to seal that adoption, He sent His Spirit to teach us how to speak. Just like we are born again, we need to learn how to speak again. How is it that we can pray to God our Father? Because the Spirit teaches us how to speak and the Son intercedes for us. Adoption affects prayer. Adoption affects everything in our lives. And it is a beautiful noise when our mouths open and the Spirit speaks. It is incredible. And so we, the first thing I want you to see is that adoption cannot be separated from Christ's work. You cannot say, I'm a child of God and not be redeemed. Apart from his atoning work, apart from our justification in his work, we cannot be adopted. These two things are inseparable. These things, his atonement, his propitiation, his redemption, open the door for adoption. They make it possible. So much so that J.I. Packer says the inflammatory words, That adoption is the highest privilege the gospel offers, even higher than justification. What? Adoption is the highest privilege, and I agree with him, the highest privilege the gospel offers, even higher than justification. Justification is true. We are declared righteous. We stand before him righteous. But it is an additional privilege that that judge who declares us righteous then brings us to the dinner table. That is a higher privilege. It is one thing to stand in front of a judge and he declares you are righteous because of the work of my son. It is a whole other thing for that judge to say, come home and be my son as well. That is a high privilege. Amen? Amen. Are we declared righteous? Are we justified in Christ? Yes. Are we beloved sons in him? Yes. So the second passage I want to look at. We go from our standing in adoption to our spirit in adoption. Anyone want to guess? Anyone want to guess where I'm going next? Romans 8. Someone said earlier. Thank you. Um, Romans 8. I'm not, I'm not trying to trick you guys. Romans 8. I want to pick up in verse 14. The parallel adoption passage, but look at what Paul emphasizes here. 
He emphasizes our standing in Galatians, but he emphasizes something different in Romans. Same doctrine, two supportive uh, statements. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. You see what is repeated again and again in here? The Spirit himself bears with you, with you, with our spirit, that we are children of God. So we have a new standing and we have a new spirit. So God changes how we stand in front of him. We are deemed to be adopted, but he also changes the spirit within us, the very nature of who we are. This is how we walk in newness of life, because the Spirit teaches us how to walk, teaches us how to crawl and then walk and then run in the Christian life. His Spirit testifies with our spirit. And just as the Spirit teaches us to talk, He teaches us to walk, and He bears witness, and He confirms the teachings of Jesus, and He secures us. Adoption is beautiful because we are sealed with the Holy Spirit. And so I want to connect this to last week when we look at the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Why can a Christian not blaspheme the Holy Spirit? And I love the conviction that happened after last week's sermon. Because a couple of you came up to me and said, have I blasphemed the Holy Spirit because I did X, Y, or Z? And that is a good conviction. But I will tell you why a Christian cannot blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Because the Spirit cannot blaspheme Himself. He cannot divide against Himself. If the Spirit of God is in you, He will not let you blaspheme Himself. This is the protection that cannot be broken. This is why we can be sealed and confident that we will persevere to the end because it is God Himself, the same one who saves us, who redeems us, who seals us and keeps us. His kids will always be His kids. Amen. Amen. So back to the original question. How do we define family? I want to close with a couple thoughts on this. Every one of us in this room have had to make the difficult decision of how do we view our family who is, we were born into, but rejects Christ? How do we view the family that we're born again into and embraces Christ? This is a, a difficult tension that each one of us has to walk in our lives. Do we see a difference between those who we call family who reject Christ and those who Christ calls family, who he has accepted. You know, we hear the phrase, well, blood is thicker than water. I agree. What blood are you defined by? Is it the blood that pumps through your veins or the blood that covers you from your sins? Amen. And if indeed we are covered by the atoning blood of Jesus Christ, that is the family blood that defines us. And if you get this, and I hope you do, you know how beautiful this is. You know how much joy this brings to know that I am in the family of God. Jesus Christ died to make me his own, that I might have a father who would never leave me and never forsake me. And especially if your family's a mess. Especially if your family disappoints you, as ours all do. You have a father who will never disappoint you. And you have a new family that will disappoint you, I promise. But one day we will be redeemed, and hopefully we'll be redeemed fully. And hopefully, until then, we are humble enough and gracious enough to admit when we offend one another. 
to admit that our union in Christ is greater than our own desire to be right or win an argument. So I want to close with a couple quotes. Um, I love that adoption furthers and unfolds the gospel, the, the love of the triune God for us and our love for Him. I've told a few of you about uh, the book by Fred Sanders, The Deeper Things of God, one of my favorite books on the Trinity. But he says this in his chapter on adoption. The good news of salvation is that God in Himself is eternally the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He has become for us the adoptive Father, the incarnate Son, and the outpoured Holy Spirit. God the Father sent the Son to do something for us and the Spirit to be something in us to bring us into the family of God. Think about that. Father, Son, and Spirit, the love and unity that has existed in the Godhead for eternity, that Jesus prays for in John 17, let them be one as as, as we are one, is now given to us in Christ. That's what adoption means. We We now have an adoptive father. We have a brother in Christ, and we have a new spirit who seals us. And so Fred Sanders closes his chapter with this quote from Adolphe Monod, his uh, French preacher in the 1800s. He gave this sermon, or these words on his deathbed, and I want to close with these. Look at what he says about the doctrine of adoption. The relation of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to man corresponds to a relationship in God between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the love which is poured out to save us is the expression of that love which has dwelt eternally in the bosom of God. Ah, I want to sound like that on my deathbed. The doctrine then becomes of us so touching and profound. There we find the basis of the gospel. And those who reject it being the gospel as a speculative and purely theological doctrine have therefore never understood the least thing about it. Because it, the gospel, is the strength of our hearts. It is the joy of our souls. It is the life of our life. It is the very foundation of revealed truth. Amen? Let's pray. Music team, you guys can come up. Lord, thank you for the work that you have done in us. Thank you that we know what love is because of you. We know what unity is because of you. We know what righteousness is because of you. We know what grace is because of you. We know what holiness is because of you. And you have given us a share to partake in the divine family. This is amazing. Lord, I pray this morning that your church would be encouraged that your church would be built up in love for one another, that we would confidently and lovingly say, welcome brother, welcome sister, as Christ has welcomed us. We'd be united to him for eternity. And it is his name we pray. Amen.